Welcome to the official Espigan podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Noisley. Hi folks, here I am again. And today I'm here with Professor Michael Trauner. Michael Trauner and I have known each other for, is it 20 years? Something like that. Since he, well, since he was, I think, still at Yale as a postdoc. I think we met then for the first time at one of the hepatology meetings in the United States. At any rate, he came back to Graz, where he took his medical degree and where he moved up the academic ladder in the field of bioassays and their physiology and their pathophysiology. Some while back, he accepted a call to a professorship at the University of Vienna And he's kept right on shining, <laughs> right on making those discoveries and putting them to clinical use. He's a success story. And here he is to tell us about the insights that he provided to the, his audience at the May 2023 annual meeting of Espigan in Vienna. Michael, here you are. Thanks, Alex, and uh, thank you very much for reminding me of our long-standing uh, common history. And uh, it really is all about the new perspectives of bile acids. And I really understand if people, when they hear the word bile acid, uh, it sounds a little bit old-fashioned, right, and not very appealing. I think the same happened to us maybe 20 years ago, and I think the field has shaped tremendously. It truly has with <laughs> the discoveries in which you participated and with the new uses of bioessence as therapeutic agents. But, Michael, I have to confess, I, in preparing for this interview, I went through the slides that you intended to show at your talk, and it was... It was too much. It was a feast. You, you, you come from Graz, you know the breakfast buffet at the Hotel Weizler there along the moor, and you know that there's just so many good things, there's no way you're ever going to sample, let alone digest them all, at one meal. So what I'd like you to do now is you're there, you've picked up your cutlery and your napkin and your plate, Now, what are you going to serve us? What are the best bits from your talk? I understand you perfectly well. If you allow me a personal note, before I moved into the bioacid field and have not yet been a bioacid aficionado, I was really shocked when my former mentor told me, Michael, go into bioacid research. This is an exciting new opportunity for you. And I said, wow, 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 let's stop here for a moment. Bile acids, you mean plural? There's more than one bile acid and more oh, than one bile so acid on transporter. <laughs> so on the same. Who was that mentor? That was Günther Kreis. He was a fantastic oh, mentor, okay. recognizing when new fields open up. And, you know, Alex, when you, you give a talk, you have to decide... Do you want to convey information, which you also can look up or read up or look at a great video, or whether you want to enthuse people? And I hope 
this happen today in the room? Because this is something which only happens with personal interaction. But I, I get your point. Uh, I think the most important message of my talk today was that bioassets are signaling molecules. Signaling molecules, all right. Go on. I, I think I'm still used to thinking of bioassets as principally involved in solubilizing lipid. But there's a lot more going on. This is certainly a very important function, their detergent action. But when you remember where bile acids come from, they come from cholesterol, like all other steroid hormones. So I would like to think of bile acids as steroid hormones. And this is really the new discovery which has, has happened over the last uh, 15 or 20 years to recognize that bile acids signal like hormones, like steroid hormones. Okay. Endocrine, for sure, body-wide, and also paracrine, local environment. Right. That's, that's one important point, that bile acids, due to their biochemical features, they're usually conjugated uh, with amino acids, taurine or glycine, they need active transport systems to get into the cell. And uh, they are kept in what we call the entropatic circulation between the liver and the gut through active mm -hmm, transport mm -hmm, systems. So mm -hmm. I would like to think of bile acids as enterohepatic hormones, which are kind of trapped within the enterohepatic transport systems between the gut and the liver, where they recirculate. Uh, you have to keep in mind when you have your gallbladder being filled full of bile and this is going to contract after a meal, the bile acids go into the gut and then recirculate six to eight times a day between the liver and the gut. So they continuously recirculate and they also recirculate together with the digestive food. So it's a very clever way of the body combining that detergent activity which is required for digestion, with the signal for the liver, for example, hey, here comes the food, do something with this. But, and, or rather, and, those signals, the uptake of those bile acids is limited, if I understand, to what we, to what we know so far, to a particular subset of epithelia, that is, enterocytes, and, of course, cholangiocytes, And finally, hepatocytes. And then each of those can take the bile acids that it has ingested and then process them and use them for signaling purposes, such as the gut having been exposed to bile acids, to modified bile acids, modified by the enterobiome, can now send its own signals to the gut sorry, to the liver, that are independent of those bile acids, downstream signals. So this is a process that multiplies itself and extends itself. It fans out to involve a lot of other signaling pathways. Absolutely. And that's the fascinating way that this enterohepatic cycling of bile acids is amplified by gut mm -hmm. hormones, mm -hmm. such as GLP-1. We all know that from you know treating obesity with the incredins, which are now 
used to treat uh, obesity and diabetes. And GLP-1 is produced by enterocytes in response to bile acids. So another And another that. important hormone is fibroblast growth factor 19, FGF-19, uh, which is going back to the liver, repressing bile acid synthesis, which is a very clever way for the body to do, to sense in the gut how much bile acids do we have, which we need for the digestive function. Do we have to produce more? And if there is enough, the signal goes back to the liver to repress bile acid synthesis. And what is also very important, this signal also promotes storage of glucose into glycogen and suppresses lipogenesis. So this is the signal telling the body, hey, here is food, do something with it, store it within the liver, don't let the body flood over with glucose, which we don't need, and stop producing lipids in the liver because we have the lipids coming with the food. So it's this tied-in physiology which makes it so fascinating. Stop producing lipids within the liver. Right, okay. I think, you're, I think you're nosing into an idea about how to treat non-alcoholic fatty liver disease here. Absolutely. I mean, one thing which we have to be aware that the studies with FXR agonists, which are compounds which mimic this bile acid signaling through the bile acid receptor, or there are also injectable drugs which mimic FGF19 function, have not been a real breakthrough in the treatment of NASH. Uh, oh. They showed some signals, but probably NASH is not the main indication. It's rather cholestatic liver diseases, which is more the core of the biology. Okay. Because when you see of a metabolic, uh, for, when you see that from a metabolic perspective, bile acids are more the fine-tuning signal. So okay. uh, interfering with the fine-tuning signal may not do the job by itself. It may be an add-on therapy, and those therapies are still tested as combination therapies. But I would see cholestatic diseases as the main indication because this is really where the bile as this biology is, is most interwoven into what is uh, normally happening in the body and what goes wrong in pathological conditions such as cholestasis. Michael, that's great. But I've taken you down my own personal rabbit hole. I've followed some thoughts that I had when I imagined that I understood part of your talk. And... That's not what we're here for. What we're here for is for you to tell us what the best bits are from that buffet that you plated up for us this morning. Or that from the best bits are from the buffet that you plated up in that talk. I think one of the main stories is that we now have drugs which target bile acid signaling and we can use that to treat liver disease and perhaps inflammatory disorders in a broader context, such as inflammatory bowel disease. And there's a lot going on with uh, drugs specifically targeting the nuclear hormone receptor for bile acids, FXR, by modulating transport systems of bile acids, for example, the ileal reuptake inhibitor, the ASPD inhibitors, one always has to be aware when you modify bile acid transport, you also modify the signaling properties within the gut. For example, ASPD inhibitors, which are a hot topic in pediatric hepatology, of course deplete bile acids from the body and help to prevent accumulation of bile acids, which is one part of the story. 
The other part of the story is that you alter the signaling in the gut. For example, you promote production of GLP-1. This may be one possible reason why these drugs also could work in NASH. And GLP-1 also is helping cholangiocytes, the biotic epithelial cells, to survive under cholestatic conditions. So there's again this multiple fascinating layer which we've talked about before. And there's also the interaction with the gut microbiota, which I think is also another hot story which I presented today. So bile acids interact with gut microbiota. They are metabolized by microbiota, which we all know we have secondary bile acids. But bile acids also a very important way to control and restore gut microbiota. When we think about liver disease and dysbiosis, or dysbiosis, which is disrupted uh, balance and diversity of the gut microbiota, bile acids help to restore that and also help to maintain gut integrity and gut health. I think this is another exciting story because the gut-liver axis matters a lot in all of those diseases which we want to treat. I can't tell you how right your mentor was in recommending that you go into this field and the number of perspectives that it was going to offer to you and to others interested in the handling of bile acids. Here we are as medical students trying to get our heads around what's important in understanding bile acids as how we can use them. To, in this today's setting as I interview you, for pediatric patients. There are a lot of uses that I'm sure you're, you're among the most familiar with in adult hepatobiliary disease, the sclerosing cholangitides, primary biliary cirrhosis. But for the most part, those are not particularly pediatric disorders. Let's go back to, say, allergial syndrome and pruritus. Let's go to the forms of progressive familial intrahepatic cholestasis and its milder versions of, quote, benign, close quote, recurrent intrahepatic cholestasis. Progress is being made there in, as you commented, blocking the recirculation of bile acids and reducing the load of bile acids presented to the liver from the gut. That's in the pre-transplanted patient. And uh, what about in the post-transplant patient? I'm not aware of any studies post-transplant. I know that there are studies after CASI in biliary atresia, for example, ongoing, trying to prevent you know, the not-so-great outcome in some of the patients after CASI. I think that's an indication post-transplant, I think, that's a setting to think last about because um, you have a lot of interaction with potentially immunosuppressive drugs where you might interfere with absorption. So those are things which I think also from the adult hepatology perspective always come last. So Okay. I, it may be nothing at all. It may not be important. But the Amish kids whom I saw, the ones with progressive familial intrahepatic cholestasis type 1, permitted themselves to be transplanted for the first time a little over 30 years ago. There was reluctance among that conservative community to get too deeply involved with medicine. Uh, and I remember the telephone call from Tim Boyle, a pediatric gastroenterologist in Cleveland, 
who followed Susie Miller, the first Amish kid to have a liver transplant for progressive familial intrahepaticholestasis type 1. A routine liver biopsy, maybe six weeks after transplantation, rule out rejection, had found that her liver had been almost entirely transformed into fat. And that goes along with the steatohepatitis, and it went along with her losing her life to losing her transplant some decades later. There we have an instance of a, an abnormal gut, a metabolically abnormal gut, being presented with, all of a sudden, after the transplant from a non-PFIC1 liver, a boatload of bile acids, and not knowing what to do with it, and sending some sort of crazy signal to the liver that said, make fat. No, sure. This is a, a wonderful example about the complexity. There are, of course, many things going on in bile disease, <laughs> yeah. including the diarrhea, which may persist after liver transplantation. I don't. I, I, I get your point. I think it's really a potential indication, but maybe not an avenue which I would follow first before we know more about how those drugs really work, how those drugs really interact with gut microbiota and shape the gut microbiota. Uh -huh. Also, when we talk about gut microbiota, we always think about what comes out with poops at the end about fecal gut microbiota. Well, it's the easiest is, to get hold of. <laughs> it is, but it's not the story. Ah, what is happening in the gut may be more the small intestine in and, of time, course, the colon. The time, yeah. Right, mm -hmm. yeah. And there are wonderful stories, uh, nature papers, which tell us new bile acid uh, metabolites, new microbiota producing those bile acids, which we didn't know about before. And this is something which I think is going to transform the field because we also have much more than the usual secondary bile acids in the gut, which, which help to restrain the inflammatory response of the gut against the gut microbiota. That's probably mm -hmm, one of the reasons. Mm -hmm, Those mm -hmm. are locally acting metabolites, which we are not going to find in the blood, which may only remain in the, in the gut. And there was a recent nature paper which just came out last week which showed that with pH-sensitive capsule sampling, you could sample different regions of the intestine in human volunteers and would discover new bile acid species which are not there in the colon and not there in the feces, which have signaling function, modulating immune cell function. So I think we talked about a <laughs> oh, totally new world. To doors after doors after doors all Absolutely. opening. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really fascinating. And... It's a world inside of us which we don't know yet and which we are going to explore with new techniques which are now, and that's I find, I find so fascinating, are also amenable for human studies. Michael, we've reached the end of the buffet line. We're, past, we're at the dessert cart. And boy, have you laid out a lot of lovely stuff for us to enjoy. Ah... <sighs> At this point in the interview, we generally ask the person being interviewed for a musical recommendation, a song. It doesn't have to be a song. It could be uh, an instrumental element that has something to do with where that interviewed person came from, what is 
part of his or her cultural makeup to share with the rest of Espigan, to share with people who come from different countries, different traditions, and that yet lets us all feel we're all in this together, as Espigan members should be. Do you have a song ready for us? I have. I'm, I'm a big fan of both Gustav Mahler and Richard Strauss. And I would uh, suggest one of the four last songs of Richard Strauss, Abendrot, which also has a wonderful instrumental introduction going on, going into this wonderful song carrying us along. And I think at the end you're absolutely right. It's emotions which connect us. And music is a great way of connecting people in addition to science. If you would like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our Espigan playlist. Wow, Strauss certainly knew how to tap into those emotions. Michael, thank you for that, and thank you for making yourself available. Folks, I hope you've enjoyed this, and I hope that Michael's opening of those doors, those windows to us all on what bioassets do and what they will be found to do, leads a few of you to consider being among the explorers. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Alex. It was great fun being with you.